Welcome to a special edition of Exhale. The next several episodes, we will be asking the respiratory therapist. This special series is where we will interview multiple respiratory therapists and PFT technicians in different healthcare situations during COVID this past year. We want them to share their experiences with you, what they endured during this pandemic, and what they expect since it's not going away anytime soon. Your hosts today are Mark Russell and Jansen Lanier with Vitagraph US, a global leader in respiratory diagnostics. We interviewed Michelle, a COVID relief traveling registered respiratory therapist who was presently working in Miami, Florida. With 10 years experience in respiratory care, she has been able to experience life and work in various hospital settings, including NICU, PICU, ER, trauma, MICU, and CVICU. She's also highly experienced in COVID-19 lung management. Well, welcome, Michelle. I appreciate you coming to our podcast. Why don't you please give us a little background on yourself, education experience, and what your current responsibilities are right now? Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I am Michelle Castillo. I have a bachelor's in respiratory therapy. I have been a respiratory therapist for now officially 10 years. I graduated from a little community college in Connecticut called Nagatuck Valley back in 2011 and started off trying to find a job. And the only thing I was able to land at first was a home care position. And that led me to move down to South Florida. People in Connecticut were not leaving. So there was a very difficult time to find a job back then. So I came to South Florida and I got hired at Broward General, which is a trauma level one center. There I really became a therapist. We didn't have intensivists and I worked night shifts. So we were the star RTs intubating, going to codes, rapids. The rapids and the codes are pretty much ran by the night RT and the ICU nurse. And from there, I became a clinical coordinator for another level one center in Miami. And it was also a burn center. So I learned a lot about burn. And then I concentrated my experience into neonatals and pediatrics at Jackson Memorial in Miami. And from there, the pandemic hit and I decided to get pick up and take all the experience that I had collectively gotten and go to New York City to travel. And that's where I'm at now is um, I'm doing travel, I'm concentrating more on the COVID population. That's where most of the time I am being thrown into. And I've seen firsthand how different respiratory is today compared to what it was just 10 years ago. Wow. So how long have you been treating COVID patients since back in March of 2020? So back in March 2020, I was working with neonatals and pediatrics. And at the time, COVID was not hitting us very hard. So I did get firsthand experience in the PICU with COVID but we weren't getting a lot of patients. So the few patients that were extremely sick were already very immunocompromised patients, and we knew very little on how to treat these patients in terms of lung mechanics and what we can do to improve their hypoxia and to improve their hypercapnia. So yeah, you can say March 2020 was the beginning of it, and then it really started in November 2020. Where were you in November? Were you in New York City or down in Miami? That's when I started going into New York City and started taking care of exclusively COVID patients. What are you seeing now compared to November of 2020 and now that 
we're approaching the fall of 2021. What differences are you seeing in level of care? Are things improving, not improving? What's going on out there? So it's kind of like, I wish we knew what we know now to prevent what occurred in the first wave. The way we are managing the lungs is very different than what we did in the beginning. We have now realized that the human body can sustain a lot more hypoxia and hypercapnia and being in an acidotic state than we originally thought. So the ARDSNET protocol has existed, I believe it came out sometime in the 80s, it's existed this entire time. It is something that I even wrote about when it came to really bad inflammation of the lungs when and dealing with ARDS. However, I don't think it was until now that we really seriously used it strictly to deal with non-compliant lungs. Permissive hypercapnia was always something that we read about and we always knew about, but we never really allowed for this permissive hypercapnia up until now, where the lungs are just so stiff. They're just so stiff and we can't chase a perfect blood gas anymore. We just cannot because chasing that perfect blood gas, then you are running into chest tubes and pneumos and just a lot of barotrauma into the lungs. So what we are seeing now is kind of allowing things outside of the normal parameters. So we are okay with the PAO2 being in the 60s and not doing anything about it. It's okay. It's a COVID lung, they're delicate, and the body can actually be okay with a little bit of hypoxia under a controlled environment. We are seeing a lot more of delays in intubation, whereas in ARDS and in the previous studies of ARDS, the earlier the intervention, the better it was for the lungs. For COVID, it's the complete opposite, which is why people were commenting that, oh, if people are getting intubated, uh, people are killing people in the hospital, you know, is that these theories were coming out and it wasn't that we were killing who we were doing what we were taught, which is to intervene if someone cannot breathe. Today, the thought process is prolong it as much as the body can possibly handle it before invasively intervening because it's just so damaging to the lungs when it comes to COVID ARDS. So yeah, I am seeing an improvement in how we're managing and using a lot of high flow therapy. You know, this is not a sponsored podcast, but Mm. high flow nasal cannulas have been a lifesaver in COVID and managing these COVID patients because we are able to wash out the carbon dioxide as much as we possibly can and meet the demands of the patient's respiratory need and flow desires and at the same time be able to give high oxygen. So yes, this is a whole different approach that we did not use in the first wave or even in the beginning of the second wave. You didn't know, you know, when the first round came through, we were treating what we knew and you really didn't know what it could do and what it could prolong. So you're right with having to trial and error it. And and unfortunately, some people saw the worst effect of that trial and error. That being said, those that have been on the, the negative side helped those down the line. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely, 100%. And that is the big difference now is that we are getting a lot more admissions now than we did in the first wave, according to the data that I've seen from CDC. But the patients are not getting as sick as going into the ICU. 
because we are placing so many people on high flow therapy. And it's bad right now in Miami, in terms of admissions, it's probably worse than it was in New York in the second wave. From my experience, I had by myself 26 high flow nasal cannula patients that were all COVID positive. That's not something I saw in New York. So it's kind of like you're, you're nonstop. You're, you start your day walking, 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 and you're lucky if you get a bathroom break because once you're done checking the last patient, it's time to check your first patient. Yeah, you can find those patients that are uh, needing your assistance far more. Some of the needier patients that truly need you bedside limits you from going to that next patient, to the next patient, to the next patient. Well, any respiratory therapist will tell you they prefer a ventilated patient over a high flow or a BiPAP. <laughs> because, yes, these are the patients that are extremely vulnerable and need our assistance a lot more because they are, you know, they're on the edge of, okay, getting intubated or getting better. But, you know, they're, they're playing back and forth. You, you don't know really where they're going to head. So once they get to ICU, are you seeing the recovery take a little longer than previous? Here in the Midwest, it's taking anywhere from 12 to 15 days turnaround from admittance to the ICU. What is it exactly saying, like that they're getting better quicker? So no, no, no. So I'm saying it's taking anywhere from 12 to 15 days for recovery time uh, while they're in the ICU before they're even released. So my question to you, is that an average time frame? Are you seeing longer? Are you seeing shorter? I can say it's probably around the same. It's very hard to gauge because, especially during my New York time, and right now I've been, the, the second wave I can't say has been long enough for me to determine that yet. I mean, this third wave in, in Miami, I haven't been here long enough to say what the turnaround is, but I can say that I very rarely extubate these days so far. I've been here about 22, 23 days. I started my Miami assignment into the COVID units. So I really, I, I cannot say just yet. Maybe in a couple more weeks, I can have a better picture of how we're managing it and what I'm seeing. Sure. I'd love to see a, a video follow up on your LinkedIn kind of after that initial two or three weeks, just really see where we are. Michelle, is it true that a lot of the patients are younger as compared to the first wave in November? A hundred percent. This is insane that what I am seeing and what I am taking care of. And it is an eye opener because I'm taking care of people that are younger than me. I left New York with that, by the way, the last three patients that I had in New York City before New York had, at least in Bellevue and in uh, Wild Cornell and my P right before I left, I left with zero COVID patients. My last three COVID patients were a 29 year old a 31-year-old and a 36-year-old, all three on ECMO. And the 31-year-old did pass away. The 27-year-old, I want to say he passed away because I never saw him. You know, I didn't see him in any other floor. And then the 36-year-old was still on ECMO, awake and alert, however, uh, unable to be a candidate for a lung transplant because of there's certain criteria that she wasn't meeting, which was like, I think, setting up a couple of things. But unfortunately, she was 36, uh, been in the hospital for over four months and awake, you know, and responding, alert, oriented, but unable to do anything. And now I come here to Miami and I am treating a lot of young people. Yes, absolutely. And 
I keep in contact with my previous co-workers in Miami at Jackson Holtz, and they're telling me that they are seeing an increase in pediatric patients as well that they did not see in the first or second wave. So your, your current role, it seems like it's evolving with the impact of COVID. Uh, it's affecting your everyday duties. I'm sure it's a, every day you're learning something new. Can you share some specific incidents that you've experienced before and now you're seeing something different with the variants that continues to affect your everyday duties? Well, with the variant, it's just the severity and how quickly it destroys the lungs, really. My role has become almost somewhat of a therapist to, not a respiratory therapist, but like a mental therapist to a lot of these younger patients that are on high flow because now we have more equipment that we didn't have before. And so a lot of these patients are speaking that in the past we would have probably intubated and listening to how afraid they are, to how scared they are, to how anxious and alone they feel. You know, you're dealing with 30-year-olds that have full-time jobs and families and loved ones and animals to care for at home, and they're afraid. So this time around, it's very different because I see, it sounds morbid, but I see the fears in their eyes that I couldn't really see before because we were, you know, there were older patients that were getting intubated, and, and now we have these 31-year-olds that were running the day before, you know, on a high full struggling to breathe. So yeah, it's just a never-ending, evolving, you know, duties that we're, that we're being assigned, especially with these patients that are alone in an ICU that are, aren't used to being like that. Sure. So what are some of the protocols if some of these patients successfully recover from COVID? What are they doing in your region on post-COVID type of care? For post-COVID, like I said, I haven't been here long enough to really see the discharging process. Once they are well enough to be able to get off the nasal cannula, we are seeing physical therapy coming in more often into the rooms to help them become more mobile and ambulate, making sure they're doing their ISs to prevent the atelectasis that occurs from laying in bed for so long. I mean, post-COVID, it's kind of limited to, to me right now. It becomes one of the questions are, what are we doing for these COVID patients post leaving the hospital? A majority of the places I've been to across the country have just stated, you know, we're waiting for them to either call us back because they're not feeling well or gotten worse. But what happens is you have these long haulers that are struggling. Every day they're having struggles going up and downstairs, walking down the hallway or not. And they're just not doing anything about it because they're in recovery is how they feel. So... From a respiratory diagnostic standpoint, we'd love to see them testing even FEV1 every day or something to track their overall getting better, right? So it's one of those things where we really want to follow these patients post leaving the hospital. We think it's needed. You know, we haven't heard anything about any type of plans after these patients are being discharged. That's what he's trying to say, that there's not been a consistency across the country and saying, this patient recovered, but now what's the next step? Because I'm sure there's going to be some damage or some effects from COVID. Absolutely. And I wish I knew more about business. That's definitely an initiative that possibly, you know, a respiratory therapist can take on in terms of post-COVID yeah. care. And I pushed away the business side of thing. I don't even think of it as business. It's more or less, how am I taking care of the patient? 
I worked with a couple of pulmonologists at the major hospital recently, and I asked them flat out, how are you reaching those COVID patients that came through your hospital? And they said, we really aren't. We're waiting for them to come to us or they'll get cycled through us. And I said, well, guess what? You have a list of every single COVID patient that came through your hospital. You have the right to call them and follow up with them. Ask them a couple questions, get it started, see if they are having issues still. If they are, if they meet a certain criteria, have them come in, have them do a baseline study. Just check to see where they're at. The peace of mind that a patient can have after even a heart attack, the the follow-up that we can do to help them, it can do so much. So, I mean, tracking this stuff is definitely something that's needed for everybody. Yeah, we were just curious because I know that you're still in the trenches and trying to help people that are catching this and basically, you know, younger folks that never experienced anything like this in their life. What are your concerns about the new COVID variants? Long range, what are your concerns? It's really difficult to admit that it's not going to go anywhere other than mutating because that's what viruses do. And the future of COVID, I think it's something that we're just going to have to live with. And as time progresses and as medicine and research undergoes, I think we'll just have better ways to manage it, better ways to prevent it, whether it's a vaccine or monoclonal therapy, just there's going to be more out there and more research-based practices. I just don't see it going away. Today, it's a Delta variant and possibly it's going to be another variant. It's kind of like the flu every year. We get a flu vaccine because it's a different strand. That's what viruses do. And it just happens to be a very, very hard on the body virus, you know, a virus that really attacks everything. And, you know, the lungs is just one of the parts that the virus attacks, but everyone has a different experience with COVID. If you interview someone that had COVID, I have been fortunate enough not to have COVID, but, you know, many people in my family have had COVID. My stepdad had zero symptoms, but yet has shortness of breath. And when they did a CT, they found that he has fibrosis in his lungs. You know, how does this happen? And then my partner, he was hospitalized for five days and he recuperated 100% lung wise, but then he has these weird outbursts of inflammation in his whole body. Like he starts to react like he's having an allergic reaction and his lips get swollen, his mouth, his tongue, everything swells up and he has a big Benadryl and it's literally out of nowhere. That's my concern is that we just don't, don't know what direction the virus is going or what it really does. And affects everybody differently. Yeah, it's really weird. It's very weird. When I start hearing people, they're like, oh, you know, I can't smell, but I can taste. And I'm like, I thought those things were connected. (laughs) If I can't smell it, I can't taste. But apparently people that have had COVID, they can't smell, but they can taste. I'm like, okay. Do you feel like the second wave, third wave, whichever we want to call it, has hit people more to get vaccinated? Or has it just been a another political ploy? type piece that that people consider. I know you're in Florida and Florida is is one of the least vaccinated states in the country. And I'm in Miami. Um, So this is an interesting question. I love this question because it has to do a lot with, yes, politics and to minorities take on certain things. And being a minority myself, I 
understand some of the concerns with, for example, the Cuban population here in Miami. They're very anti-vaccine because they're very anti-government because it comes down to what happens in their country. That's that's their origins of why they're anti-vaxxers. And then not anti-vaxxers, just anti-anything that the government is pushing because they are so afraid because of where they're coming from, their origins. And then I have a lot of friends in the African-American community and they're like, nope, not doing it. I'm like, why? And they're like, no, I'm African-American. They are going to experiment on me. And it's it just comes down to people have lost trust. And that's really what it comes down to. People have lost trust in medicine, in politics, in the government, in just this whole way that virus had, had been handled. People have just lost trust. And so this variant, I don't think, is making anti-believers to get vaccinated until someone very close to them is affected. So they have to see it, right? They have to. Um, My partner is also a respiratory therapist, and he is still to this day very anti the vaccine. And he got very, very sick to the point where he was saying goodbye to everybody. He thought he was going to go. And understandably so. He was adding 75% on nasal cannula and didn't want any further interventions. And you know, I asked him, I said, well, now are you pro the vaccine? And he's still very hesitant. He won't get vaccinated. He wants to keep on testing him, you know, getting antibody tested to see if he still has the antibody and he just doesn't want to. So I do not think that it's something that when you see other people get sick, that you're going to learn from it. It's only going to take seeing someone very close to you get affected before doing something about it. And that's something that I have listened to from my patients. I had a, a patient that was very against the vaccine and her husband was very against the vaccine. And while she was in the hospital, as I'm treating her, she was getting better. I actually took her off the high flow and she received news that her, her husband had passed away. And she then got worse, obviously, from all the stress and all that. So we had to put her back on the high flow. And in the hospital bed, she said, you know, once I get out of here, I'm going to get vaccinated in the name of him. Sure. You know, like that's that's what it took for her to change her mind. Sure. We experienced that as well. I, you know, I, I spoke to a pulmonologist last week who's 48 years old, no comorbidities, seasonal allergies, gets COVID, gets an ICU. This is a pulmonologist. He's in the ICU mm-hmm. for four months. And as soon as he gets out, he's like, I wow. Why everybody wouldn't vaccinate? And so it's one of those experiences that you have to live beside or see it and kind of to really know. I'm not sure what the culture is in the in your area in the Midwest, but I have friends that are from more rural areas that are a lot more conservative, and they were they looked down upon me when I decided to vaccinate in January, and they're just like, I can't believe you know what would you do? You know they were on and on and on, and I was like. Hey, um, I'm okay with you know trying it, seeing if it works. Like I'm, I'm okay with it. And this is like at first when we didn't even know if it was gonna work. You know, it was like here, it's available for anyone who wants to do it. And I was like, well, I'm okay with being one of the first people. I'm okay with it, knowing that there may be side effects to it. But I, I'm so in COVID that any type of protection, I'm down for. And that just seems to be like the theme as well with very rural areas um, that are with a more conservative background too. Are you seeing uh, many patients that have been vaccinated enter the hospital with COVID? So that inform the the actual admitting information I don't really find unless my patients are speaking to me. Right. The intubated patients I really don't find out. I can't find that in their charts. But as far as my awake and alert patients, most of them 
were not vaccinated. There was one, and this is actually an interesting case. There was one breakthrough. He was vaccinated and he was very sick on high flow nasal cannula, but he was actually a patient with already pulmonary fibrosis from his past employment. He was, he worked for, I think it was like coal mining in his country, you know, but he already had a lot of pulmonary issues and he did get the vaccine and yeah, he was sick on the high flow, but he was slowly getting better. And I believe that in his case, had he not gotten the vaccine, I don't think he would have been doing as good as he was, relatively speaking, than what he was, because that would have knocked anybody out (laughs) having COVID and already pulmonary fibrosis. I agree. I've got one last little sidebar question. How many of the patients that have come in recently that have tested positive for COVID potentially had COVID before? I I wouldn't know. I would not know. None of the ones that I that I can talk to have been able to to, to let us know. You know, all the, it's very difficult with our intubated patients because we don't really let our family members in. So sure. there is a a disconnect there with the history of the patient. And, you know, when they're first coming into the ER, it, oh, it's scary. They're just all at the same time. They're just all desatting. They're blue to the face. You know, we're just running around putting BiPAPs on them. But uh, that would be an interesting study to see, you know, how many got COVID once and then how many got the Delta variant. Right. Absolutely. Is there anything else? Uh, do you think we've covered everything or is there something you'd like to uh, tell our listeners out there? Well, I just want everyone out there to do their research, you know, and know that there are ways to protect yourselves out there. There are options in that COVID is real. It's affecting everybody now, not just the elderly and immunocompromised, as we originally thought. This is affecting people from young children to, you know, middle-aged, healthy individuals. Just protect yourself, whichever way possible, whether you want to vaccinate, mask up, stay home, quarantine, whatever, it is real. It's out there and it's just something that we have to protect ourselves from. Well, great. Michelle, we really appreciate your time today and all your insight on this. And again, thank you for taking the time to answer our questions and we appreciate all you're doing out there. I really thank you guys for having me and to get the perspective of the therapist in this time right now. I really, really appreciate it. It's helping us in our profession. You have been listening to Excel with Vitalgraph. Your host is Mark Russell. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. Please leave a review and subscribe for new episodes. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again on Exhale with Vitalgraph.